Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. And here at Ohlone Territory, my name is Elizabeth Carney. I'm chair of the club's Business and Leadership Forum and your host for today's program, which is entitled Do No Harm, Civic Leadership and the Role of Healthcare. We invite our audience to visit us on the Internet at CommonwealthClub.org to learn about the many fine programs held here at the club. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speakers, Dr. Rupa Mara, Associate Professor of Medicine, University of California at San Francisco, in conversation with Donna LaSala, Professor and Faculty Director at Presidio Graduate School. Before I ask that you each tell us about your background, I was encouraged to tell you about the club's background. The club is over a 100 years old, and it was originally started as an activist organization. A group of people got together. They looked at what were the difficulties in San Francisco. They had some research done. They shared a meal together. And then they would often go off to Sacramento and get the laws changed. So it's in that spirit that I welcome our speakers today and ask you to bring just a little bit of um, understanding about your background and what brings you here today. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Hello, everybody. My name is Donna LaSala. And as Elizabeth mentioned, I am from the Presidio Graduate School, where I'm the co-founder of the Center for Civic Leadership and Social Justice. We founded the center to encourage and support people who are interested in creating spaces for civic conversation with diversity and inclusion at the forefront and to take a hard examination or a hard look at our civic structures and create change. It's my pleasure to be here with Rupa and Elizabeth today. My name is Rupa Maria. I am a physician um, hospitalist at UCSF, um, an associate professor there, uh, where I do work around um, organizing health workers to really look at the structural causes of the diseases that we face as opposed to simply just the pharmaceutical cures. Um, I am a musician with the band Rupa and the April Fishes. I compose music. Um, I'm a mother. I was born here in occupied Ohlone territory in what is now known as Mountain View when there used to be apricot orchards before Google. Um, <laughs> And um, I was, you know, the daughter of Punjabi immigrants from India who came here to establish um, Silicon Valley back in the day. Um, And so that is the perspective that I'm coming with. Well, we welcome you both. And I think um, it's a great opportunity for all of us, but especially the two of you, to have a conversation about what is justice and social social justice, especially with health and health care. Yeah. I would love to kick us off by just acknowledging <clears throat> the beauty of the song that we just played. I, uh, I, I'm still getting a little emotional when I first heard that song. I think it's such a testament to how all of us that are living our American lives are doing so on land that was taken, forcefully taken, 
and um, by colonizers. And I know you do a lot of work, Rupa, on the connection between colonization, trauma, and healthcare. And I wonder if you could just tell us about the intersection of those three dynamics. Well, I've been I'm starting to dig in more um, to look at the impacts of um, basically the health impacts of colonization. Um, how do we understand where we are today as a society with the health problems that we face? Not so much, you know, we're often thought, we often think of diabetes, heart disease, lung cancer, um, these, you know, top 10 killers in American society or in industrialized societies as things that we get because we've made poor choices. So like you just smoked too much, you ate too much, you didn't exercise enough, therefore now you have these diseases. Um, and as I look at the structure of colonization with the systems of supremacy that it comes with, whether it's white supremacy or human supremacy or um, a certain religious supremacy um, or male supremacy, these things, I believe, pull us out of a dynamic that actually allows us to be healthy. So I've started to understand that these social structures have more impact than simply just, um, you know, your lifestyle choices. And so um, that's what I've been studying and researching and, and learning from the communities who've invite me, who've invited me to accompany them on their medical or health journeys. Yeah, thank you. And can you say a little bit more about this relationship between the trauma experienced by the folks who were colonized and the healthcare issues that are showing up in our society today? Well, when you look at groups that are more recently colonized, um, so tribes that have not experienced um, encounter or colonization, um, within a matter of decades, they start to have the same health problems that we have. <clears throat> and it's not simply because they opened up a McDonald's, you know, in the Amazon, or it's not simply because, you know, all of a sudden they're making different dietary choices. It's because I believe a whole systems of understanding have been um Surplant, supplanted. Um, so what people's relationship to the earth or relationship to each other or relationship to the greater um, global um, citizenry, what it all means. Um, and so I think that these things have more impact than we think. Hmm. And one, one striking example that I, you know, one example that really resonates with me um, was when I was at Standing Rock and one of the Lakota um, women told me the story of the damming of the Missouri River. And so in Standing Rock, so the Lakota people and Dakota and Nakota people, the Plains people, were the last to go into reservation um, status of, of the people of that part of the, this continent. And they have some of the worst health indices in the Western Hemisphere. So if you are, you know, a Lakota person in the Pine Ridge Reservation has an average life expectancy of 57 years old, and someone who is white in South Dakota in that neighborhood area has a life expectancy of about 75 years old. Um, so why is there this disparity? Um, and one of the one of the ladies told me the story of, you know, in the 1940s, when the river was dammed, the cottonwood forests were flooded. And those forests used to be the places where the indigenous people would get their food and medicine. So they had these established food ways and medicine ways that kept them healthy for 30,000 years. And so now that the river's flooded and those places are gone, they become dependent. They become dependent on the state for their 
medicine, you know, whatever IHS is, and they become dependent for their food. Um, so they're no longer um, engaging the food and medicine ways in the same capacity. And what you can see with the rates of diabetes is with the damming of the river, the rates of diabetes go through the roof. Mm. So you could see diabetes as simply, okay, people are becoming more sedentary, more obese, and therefore more insulin resistant, but they're also losing um, core cultural understandings of who they are in relationship to the land and in the relationship to the plants in relationship to all the the things that they call their ancestors their relationships so when those things change um, the end product becomes diabetes and i think that we're going to come to understand these diseases as more complex than simply looking at an insulin receptor and seeing how sensitive our bodies are to insulin um just on a you know a, a molecular biological um, way, we have to start understanding these phenomenon as a little more um, complex and influenced by um, social stressors. Right. At Presidio, we teach our students to really examine and question the financial, environmental, and social systems that are impacting our world. And when I hear you talk about what's going on with the Lakota and Dakota Nation, um, I'm just struck by how this. Um, trespassing onto the ecosystem of this nation have really was um, purposely initiated for financial gain. And so I'm uh, curious as to where you see the whole system of capitalism's role in the, sort of the trauma that we're, we're seeing in our health today. I feel like capitalism, extractive capitalism, is the way in which colonization um, happened mm -hmm. um so that you know capitalism and colonization were being developed at the same time and exported globally from europe around the world mm -hmm. um and so i i think that inherently in a system that requires constant growth um we're not going to see the regeneration that's needed to maintain health not of our societies of our ecosystems of our people and so i think that we really need to call into question and imagine new economies i don't think we're at the end of our imagination as human beings um, so i don't think you can say oh if it's not coffee well then communist certainly doesn't work. Um, I don't think we've seen yet um, what, you know, the, the, the capacity of human imagination to, to develop eco economic structures that feed a regenerative spirit um, of the land, of the people, of the societies. Um, but I think that that is a possibility. Yeah. Our students talk a lot about millennial capitalism, if you will, where a triple bottom line orientation with more focus on social justice outcomes is really part of the bookkeeping. Yeah, I don't know if, you know, I, I kind of think like when we're looking at, you know, climate catastrophe, so we've got 12 years to get our act together. Um, I don't know if we can kind of greenwash our way there. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can just say, well, let's have a, a kinder, gentler, greener capitalism. Um, I, I think that the problem is it, the very structure of the economics um, that drives the engine. Mm -hmm. So we need another engine to drive us besides profit. Um, we need an, an engine that focuses on human health, um, planet health, other health of the water, health of the species around us. Um, one way you can look at it is like, um, like looking at the microbiome. So, you know, we can look at agriculture. How do we produce enough food for people? Well, we need industrial agriculture. We need to be operating on this certain scale. Um, but when we operate on this huge scale um, that we've been operating on, we completely deplete the soil microbiome. Well, what's the effect when we 
deplete the soil microbiome. So if we just look at um, kind of the narrow mindedness, even of triple bottom line, um, we're not encompassing kind of the whole um, the whole spectrum of issues that need to be addressed as we make policy. Mm, a more holistic bottom line is what you're after. Yeah. Yeah. I the agree. whole, the whole bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> Not just three things. <laughs> right. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with the Do No Harm Coalition. I was so moved when I read about your engagement in that and how you're trying to further that cause. So the Do No Harm Coalition is is a student-led organization at UCSF, and I, I help, um, and I helped found it. Um, and it came out of um, seeing five people on hunger strike in San Francisco um, when I was driving to work. I was driving to UCSF, and um, as San Francisco has become a more and more expensive place to live, and the Mission District became more desirable um, as a place to live, I started to notice that more brown and black people were being shot by the police. And this was at a time that I was also seeing these, you know, exposés about racist text messages through the SFPD Um and so I started to pay more attention to what was going on. Um, my band formed in the Mission District, and that's where we played. We played in the streets. One of the guys who was shot by the police, Luis Gongorapat, used to watch my car if my guitar amps were in it while I was at a meeting. He would, you know, help me make sure my car was safe. And so these were people, you know, many of the people who've been shot by the police were known in the community. They were loved in the community, um, <clears throat> but they were unknown to newcomers who were coming into San Francisco with lots of money. Um, and so as I was watching the gentrification of the Mission neighborhood and watching, you know, Mario Woods being shot, Alex Nieto being shot, Luis Gongorapat being shot, Amilcar Perez Lopez being shot, um, I was just becoming more concerned about, you know, what was happening. And I saw these five people sitting in front of the Mission Police Department on hunger strike. And I thought, oh, God, you know, what, what's, what's going to happen? So I said that I saw them on day three. And I said, well, on day six, they're still there. I'm going to go introduce myself and, and offer my support. Um, and so on day six, they were there. So I went to introduce myself. And one of them, um, Selassie, was a musician who played with me when I played at Power to the Peaceful with Michael Franti in Golden Gate Park mm. a few years prior. And he's like, oh, I know her. She's cool. She's a musician. <laughs> um, and that's been an interesting part of my life is that um, often in spaces where communities are really struggling for justice, um, they might not be necessarily open to a university professor or a doctor coming in, but because I'm a musician and we've used the band as a vehicle to travel to places around the world where we can see the intersection between society and health and play music in those spaces, um, people have been very open and I feel very grateful to that. And so they said, you know, she's cool. Let's, let's talk with her. And then we organized to um, make sure that their health wishes were honored during this hunger strike. Mm. So we took them to the Clinica Martin Baro, which is a free clinic in the Mission District run by San Francisco State students and collaboration with UCSF medical students. It's a place where UCSF faculty volunteer. Um, and it's a place that focuses on giving care to um, anyone who walks in the door, but especially undocumented people who don't want to give their identification. So we'll walk in, you give us a number, that's what we'll call you that number if you want, and we will take care of you. Um, and so we brought the Frisco five to the, to the mission, um, clinic and through that, just all these students organized and watching them really 
you know, passionate about, like, that's why they became doctors. Mm -hmm. They came, became doctors to want to help alleviate people's suffering, whether it's directly one-on-one or socially, which is what these people were expressing. They were expressing a wound in the social body of their community. Um, and so I accompanied them on their hunger strike, a bunch of students and then other health providers started organizing. And now we're 450 members strong of health workers who are dedicated to identifying the structural causes of illness and trying to work at those places, not simply just on the individual level. Um, so understanding that racism is a structure that must be dismantled for people to be healthy, not just brown and black people, but actually everybody, mm -hmm. everybody's impacted by disparities caused by racism, things like that. Yeah. Thank you for that. We talk a lot in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I think I hear the national dialogue growing around just um, how complicit white people have been in furthering the structures of racism. And I really appreciate you calling out the fact that in order for all of us to heal, white folks really need to acknowledge the, uh, the privilege that we hold um, and how that privilege has not only hurt brown and black people, but ourselves in the society. Yeah, I think that this is part of the colonized mind. And, and what we all have to realize is that we have all been colonized, that we um, that we have all actually been separated. When I say colonized, I think of being separated. So we have been divided and conquered. Um, you look at the colonization of Europe through, um, let's say, the impact on the land-based knowledge and the uh, medicines from Europe that were dis that disappeared with the burning of the witches. Um, so there's histories in Europe um, where tribes have been colonized and people have been colonized within Europe, um, where people have been removed from their right to land and to the water and to the resources to have food, shelter, medicine um, for their people. And those that that removal was the enclosure of the commons. And that was the beginning of capitalism. So we have to look back to that time in the Victorian era, era when those things were happening. So if we're removing people from the forest where they got their food, where they got their medicine, where they got their the wood for their fuel. And these things weren't things they paid for. These are things they had relationships with mm -hmm. and they had relationships within their communities. Um, and so. Yeah, colonization is something I believe that we we all have to heal from and really understanding that that was exported from Europe around the world with a system of white supremacy. And sometimes when I say the words white supremacy, um, especially liberal progressive white folks get really annoyed with me because they're like, don't equate that with, you know, those scary people you know, and, and, and with, with the pointy hats and the burning crosses, like these aren't the same thing. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're not the same thing, but one is a system and, and it needs to be described as a system because that's what it is. When you have, let's say for myself as a musician, you know, 95% of the bands playing in the major music festivals in the United States are, are chosen by white programmers. Um, so then who's programming what we're hearing? The TV stations, the radio stations, your Congress people. Um, Congress has never been <laughs> less white as it is right now, right? And, and it just helps because then we start to see that, you know, there are these voices that are not, or are intentionally not being brought to the center. Um, very purposefully. And so, or maybe just through, you know, it's not centralized. So how do we centralize each other's perspectives enough so that we can actually enter a real dialogue? Um, and I believe it's through that real dialogue and engagement where there is actually no supremacy. There's 
a circle of engagement where we all have a seat at the table. I think that's a vision for how the world can really be healthier. Let's just hold space for that vision. A circle of engagement where diverse perspectives are included equally. What a dream. Yeah. And so how are we going to make that dream of reality? I know that um, this divide and conquer that uh, defines colonial uh, colonization really still defines our civic discourse today in so many ways. But I also know that you're doing work in your world to bring people together. How do you see a more generative civic space coming into being? I think people need to take more initiative. And um, I feel like we've become lazy through representative representational democracy. Um, I'm very inspired by the movement of the Zapatista um, autonomous indigenous people in southern Mexico in Chiapas um, in the <clears throat> insistence upon participatory government. Um, so I think that, you know, the more we can create civic dialogue and exchange together, mm-hmm. whether it's hosting dinners at your house where you invite no one who looks like you just invite, you know, 10 friends who don't look like you or don't maybe shop at the same places you shop at or don't, um, you know, do the same things you do and have dinner together. I mean, it could be as simple and beautiful as that. Everyone start to have dinner with people different than you and open these dialogues and say, what do we need? What do we need in our neighborhood? What do we need here? How can I, how can I use my privilege to help you? And for me, it's my white coat privilege. How can I use my privilege as a physician? Just yesterday, I was in East Oakland um, because there's this foundry that has been you know, emitting these noxious, noxious fumes in the area. And then it reaches up into the Oakland Hills where we live. And so I'm like, where's that smell? Where's that smell for the last few months? And then drive down and find out it's coming from this foundry and that the schools in that area have asthma rates, 200 times the national average, Mm -hmm. that the rates of premature death, like people who live in the zip code right around that area, um, are, you know, have, have, um, life expectancy rates, 10 years less than where I live or even up further in Berkeley. And so this is right here in the Bay Area. You know, you don't have to go that far. So I went to a community meeting yesterday and met with people who've been organizing around this for 10 years. And I was like, you guys are the most impacted. How can I plug in? How can I serve the work that you're already doing? How can we mobilize all my neighbors? How can we do that? And so that's what's exciting is that, they're, they just lit up. They're like, this is great. Let's get more people. Let's get more people here. Let's create solidarity. And I think that the important thing is that I'm not leading. They're leading. The most impacted are leading. And can we do that? Can we learn how to put aside our ego, our sense of privilege, our sense of, you know, we know what's best because we really don't to ask who's hurting the most. Can you lead us? Can you lead us? Like, what do we need? And this goes to the $30 million UCSF Mark Benioff grant. It's like, do we need $30 million to research homelessness? Or do we just need a $5 survey to ask, you know, <laughs> homeless people, what do you need? You know, what do you need? Tell us what you need. And here's $30 million to create that solution, you know? And so how do we, how do we use our intelligence, our capacity, our, our gifts as a society um, in the most innovative ways? So. Right on. So the sense of civic leadership about really creating space for other people to lead, to exercise their own power, self-leadership. Yes. Autonomy, like, yes, 
in, like really um, reawakening in each of us that capacity to drive change and to find those folks who are hurting and ask them how they can lead us. Yeah. What can I do to serve you? That should be, I mean, that's something I really have been blessed by the Lakota people who've taken me under their wing and sat me down and said, stop using colonizing language. Um, <laughs> you know, just like, how can we, um, how, what can I do to help? And sometimes it's nothing Just shut up and listen, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really an important thing for people to learn how to do. Thank you for reminding us that listening is a strong piece of leadership. <laughs> um, I also wonder if you could, you mentioned the work at the Dakota Nation, Dakota Nation, and I wonder if you could tell us more about the culturally sensitive healthcare clinic that you're helping raise there. So out of the protest camp at Standing Rock came an invitation to develop a clinic to decolonize medicine with Lakota healers. And... Um, my role in that is as a physician advocate to help mobilize support um, from the healthcare system, and then also to create a partnership eventually with UCSF so students can come learn from what a decolonized perspective in medicine would look like, and that young health students from the Standing Rock Reservation and the surrounding areas could get UCSF credit on their transcript the mm. way we do at the Clinica Martin Baro, and they could interact with people in the health system and help to advance their careers to create another pipeline, a better pipeline of funneling Native students into the healthcare system who are interested, um, and, and then who could go and return and activate in their own communities. Um, and so uh, that has been one of the most mind-blowing experiences thus far. We're raising money. We have a 3.5 acre lot that was donated. We have $1.5 million that's been donated so far. It's called the Mini Wechoni Health Clinic and Farm. And it is a farm because the grandmothers at Standing Rock said you cannot decolonize medicine without decolonizing food. And that goes back to that idea that we had these cottonwood forests. So part of the design of the, the whole layout is a cottonwood forest so that people can remember the ecology and remember how they relate to that ecology. Um, we are partnering with um, Linda Black Elk, who is an amazing um, ethnobotanist native woman who is part of the Standing Rock Reservation. Um, her partner, Luke Black Elk, who is a great grandson of Black Elk Medicine Man, who wrote the book Black Elk Speaks. If you haven't read it, everyone should read it. Um, and... Um, also Mass Design Group. So Mass Design Group is an award-winning um, design firm. They have been building clinics with Paul Farmer around the world um, with Partners in Health, and they specialize in creating spaces to heal racial trauma. Mm. Um, and they actually just made this amazing uh, monument to lynching in Montgomery, Alabama that's been pro- uh, profiled in the news. Um, and so they really see this clinic as a space to... Um, to create a new model for medicine, not just for native people, but for all of us, where we, we can reintegrate health care into a sense of wholeness with the earth and wholeness with community, wholeness with our families and wholeness with health systems that aren't dominated simply by pharmaceutical or insurance companies. Um, so what do we want centralized in the healthcare experience? Um, for me as a doctor, I want a person's concept of wellness to be dominating 
my health, how I work with them with health, not me telling them, you know, well, this is what you need to do, Mm -hmm. but me understanding, you know, who are they and how are they coming to this encounter and um, how can I help facilitate that? What is my role in helping to achieve, um, help them achieve wellness and balance? Um, And with that clinic in particular, Lakota Cosmology will centralize the healthcare encounter. Um, And it's very exciting because you know, when you look at what's offered right now for healthcare there, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't adequately address the emotional, mental, spiritual, physical needs of a people who've been just really affected by colonization. And when I say we've all been colonized, I believe these diseases that we're faced with, the top 10 killers in the United States, are diseases of colonization. I don't think they're necessary diseases. I think they're diseases that come with a system of capitalism and a system of colonization. And we see the impacts most in indigenous brown and black communities. They're the most heavily impacted, but we're all impacted. No one's going to No one can escape it. We actually don't have the possibility of being healthy right now because of the system that we are living in. So it brings up the quintessential question for me, and I'm sure for everybody here today, which is what do we do to take that sort of model of healthcare that you're talking about that's whole wellness or whole being and really propagate that throughout not only our American culture, but world culture? What's it going to take? How do we activate here? I think people need to become more active um, in in shutting the nonsense down. <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing that really changes it is people getting up and activating. Um, so, you know, when you see it, people in the street, let's say, shutting down traffic for Mario Woods being shot, um, let's say, you know, we had so many people in pussy hats here in San Francisco, right? I didn't see any of those people in the streets when Salim Tyndall was killed by the BART police. I didn't see any of those people in the street when Alex Nieto was shot by 59 bullets on Bernal Hill for eating a burrito like he had done, you know, every day of his life, San Francisco native. Um, So I think that people need to, when they see that happening, that disruption, ask, how can I help this? This is not just riffraff. This is people who are powerless using the language of the powerless, which is to disrupt. And the disruption, I believe, is where, you know, we as people must demand it of our health care institutions. We must demand that, you know, profits of insurance companies are not what are driving the health care debate. It's not that's not the necessary piece. The necessary piece is the health of each patient and the health of our communities. We need to centralize that. And we, we have to do that because it's not going to come from the top down. So I think that complacency needs to be, um, just really obliterated. (laughs) And I think that will happen as, um, climate catastrophe happens. So, um, and I'm wishing it would happen before that happens so that we could be prepared. Um, you know, last year I was on service at UCSF the two days it was a hundred, was it last year or the year before 106 degrees in San Francisco? Anyone was here? Yeah. So 106 degrees in San Francisco for two consecutive days. Um, I've lived here for many, many years. I've been a doctor here for many years. 
never seen anything like that. The emergency room looked like a war zone. We had people coming in with heart attacks and clean coronaries. We had people with bone marrow failure coming in Mm. with completely normal history, like heat shock, heat shock. And we were unprepared. I had a 90 something year old lady in a bed on nine long in the hospital, the ambient temperature in the hospital on that floor. Cause we don't have air conditioning because we're San Francisco. So the ambient temperature was like 85, 87 degrees. And she had a fever and she, she couldn't be cooled because the ambient temp, we don't have air conditioning. She ended up aspirating, going to the ICU and dying. And when they asked us for the postmortem review, like, what do you think happened to this woman? I said, climate, like we're not prepared. We don't have air conditioning. We don't, we're not ready. And so I think that all of these things that I'm talking about will become things that humans think about more in 12 years when stuff really starts hitting the fan, you know, Two years ago, we had a week where we couldn't breathe in San Francisco. Last year, we had three weeks where we couldn't breathe in San Francisco. What's going to happen this year? So, and I think these things will start to accelerate. Um, and what I'm hoping is that the people will start mobilizing and demanding the kind of healthcare that we need. Yeah, I'm sort of contemplating in this era with this administration in this country, how we really create space for people to mobilize, how we create space for people to self-lead through whether they come at it through the environmental, the social, or financial injustice cause. Um, And I'm just reminded that, you know, for much of our history as humans, music was a call to action and music was a medicine. And so, again, I'm wondering, um, you know, how do you see your role as a musician intersecting with your role as a doctor? Um. Yeah, how do we deal with the Trump administration? I don't. <laughs> I think that um, it's really focusing on the local. Like we we have so much resource here, right? We we could pilot so much here, just in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. We have so many billionaires per square foot. We could really create innovative systems. We have all the resources we need. We just don't have the political activation or the structures. So how do we create those structures? Maybe through dinner parties, maybe through, you know, social gatherings, maybe through music festivals, maybe through, there's got to be other ways where we can reach across divides that are there right now and dissolve them so that we can start to hear from people and think, how do we heal what's going on just right in here in the Bay area and create models that we could, that could be replicated. Mm. Um, and whether it's creating, you know, regenerative health clinics here in San Francisco, um, or in Oakland, um, and then replicating those. So I think that music is a great way to get people together. Um, if I could, have a music concert (laughs) every week, you know, to bring people together. I think it's great because people will cross pollinate and you'll see people who you would never see. Um, let's say if you shop at the same grocery store, you might see people come in just because of the interest of music. Um, so yeah, I think that music (laughs) is a great, is a great healing, gluing thing. And I, and I think that we really need to culture jam, the pop culture right now, um, and really put these music groups forward that are articulating these messages, um, because it'll inspire and uplift us the way in the sixties, you know, there was a, there was great coordinated movement between the arts. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will happen soon. 
I love doctor's orders, uh, dinner party, and some music festivals. Let's do <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> um, not to get too serious um, as we think about wrapping up our time here, but I really want to know, do you see universal health care happening in our country in the near future? Yes. Great. How do we make that happen? <laughs> we just all share our medical bills online. We're, there you go. Yeah. We just like crowdsource, like everyone just posts like, oh, wow, this is how in debt I am. What? I already pay, you know... $300 a month for my premium. Now I'm expected to pay $6,500 for a deductible and they only cover 60% of this. This is how much I still owe. Like we need those stories just published online. We need to be sharing financial data. This is not, you know, impolite or, or, you know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and this is across all classes. Yeah. So, you know, I have an auntie who's very wealthy, who's complaining about her medical bills. You know, she can cover them, but like it's ridiculous what she's being asked to pay. And then you look at people who, when I wasn't, when I was touring, I went off work for a year and a half and was touring with my band and was paying private health insurance. And it was insane. Like just dealing with the paperwork. And I'm a doctor, like I'm, I'm well educated and having to call this and do that. And like the amount of hoops I had to go through to get a mammogram mm -hmm. and make sure it was covered. Like, Imagine if you don't speak English. Imagine if you're new to this country. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, um, and it's the greatest hoax on the American people that, that we're buying into this. We really don't need to buy into this. We can demand healthcare for everybody. And that does not make us like Adolf Hitler. That makes us, you know, a healthier society. Um, I, I don't want my patients to stress about having to pay the bill when they're dying of cancer. I mean, I literally have people stressing about how they're going, how their partner's going to handle everything when they're gone because, you know, because of insurance. Like your time should be focused on your family, not paying your bills. Um, so I think that people need to just become shameless about sharing their financial data about healthcare. And we'll just see how ridiculous it is. Um, cause that money is not, it's not coming to me. I'll tell you that it's not going to the doctors. It's, you know, or at least doctors working in public institutions. Um, it's going into the hands of the insurance executives and to the pharmaceutical agencies. And, you know, I understand they do work, but come on now, like there, there really needs to be, um, a different structure. Yeah, and it's not like it's something that's unheard of that doesn't exist in country after country around the world that we have some level of universal healthcare access. Um, this is not a pie in the sky imagination. We can well, do this, and other countries have. Yeah, and it's what's amazing to me is that the people who are voting against it um, are voting against their own self interest. Yeah. So the number one cause of personal bankruptcy is medical bills. We should all be in for this. Like, who wants to be bankrupt? Who wants to go homeless because, you know, they can't pay their bills? Who wants to end up at the end of their lives knowing they can't get 24-hour care because they don't have enough money? Like, you should be able to age and die with dignity and respect mm -hmm. in a country that has this much affluence. Um, so the fact that we don't means we're accepting that, you know, that, that there should be this disparity that only the very wealthy should be able to afford that and everyone else just good luck. Um, so I, I think that those structures should be challenged and it needs to be challenged by the people. Yeah. 
Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what's going on at Hunter's Point. Um, I've heard so much about your work there, and I think that particularly the San Francisco audience is very interested in what's really happening at Hunter's Point. Well, I, it's, it's not my work, but I've been called by a community um, in Hunter's Point who know about my work um, around race and structural violence and health um, to help them design a study to look at the health impacts of the pollution in Hunter's Point. So for those who don't know, Hunter's Point is where the atom bombs were loaded onto the ships to go bomb the Marshall Islands when they were testing them and to go bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then the ships came back to Hunter's Point and then the predominantly black ship workers would come onto the ships with no protective gear and hose down the ships and then sandblast the ships. So all that radioactive material is on the land and in the water in that area, Yosemite Slough, that whole area. And so um, that area has been um, a problem since then. There's also presence of um, different or volatile organic compounds, asbestos. Um, and people in the Hunter's Point community have been complaining for decades about this, about why are our asthma rates so high? Why are our cancer rates so high? Um, and there have been various studies um, that have been conducted through partnership with the DPH and sometimes on their own or through independent investigation. And um, in 2006, uh, the Lennar Corporation wanted to develop new housing there. And so they had hired, um, or the Navy hired Tetratonic, uh, environmental contractor to look at the land and see if it was okay and clean up. Well, it's now found out that they falsified up to 97% of their data samples. Mm -hmm. So they were gathering soil from other places and saying, look, it's fine. Um, and so now the community is really worried. Like what, what have we been impacted with? And just anecdotally as a doctor, and I feel like being a hospital medicine doctor is the greatest place to see society because you see everyone who comes in. And you, you're on the front line of where people's bodies get sick. Everyone shows up at the hospital, mostly everyone. And so I remember being a resident at UCSF and seeing these young people coming in with COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbations. And okay, so how many packs a day do you smoke? I don't smoke. Well, who smokes in your household? No, no, no. I never grew up around. So you've, what do you mean? You've got emphysema. You're like 45 years old. How could you not have smoked? No, no, never smoked a day in my life. Nothing, nothing over and over again. I'm like, what's going on? You know, and so that kind of enters your mind and goes away. And then people coming in with aggressive lymphomas, um, young thirties, twenties, young black men. Um, and so it's always been a kind of a question to me. And when I started asking, no, where do you live? Oh, Bayview Hunter's Point, Bayview Hunter's Point. And so now, um, the community is asking for a study that's independent of the mayor's office and independent of the DPH and independent because those entities have not been responsive to the community. They have, you know, come out and had experts say there's no risk to human health. Everything is fine. Um, but I think now we're seeing data that as, you know, black people have been pushed out of San Francisco and the demographic is changing in Hunter's Point. Now the Asians who move have moved in have breast cancer rates that are 30%, like much higher. Mm -hmm. And Asian women have very low national mm -hmm. rates. So now their rates are looking like the Hunter's Point breast cancer rates. So there's something going on in Hunter's Point and the people want to know what it is. And so they've engaged researchers to help them 
And, and my role has just been, again, as an advocate to connect people and to ensure that this kind of study is done as a community-led study so that the people who are suffering are the ones leading the investigation, are the ones who will own the data, are the ones who are authoring the papers, are the ones who are, you know, heading this up. Um, so that, I think, is sort of the decolonizing methodology is saying, you know, how can we help you? You know what you need. How do we use our privilege to further your health agenda? Um, they know what they need. And they're amazing. Um, Karen Pierce, who actually works at the DPH, is a very well-respected community member in Hunters Point. And her daughter, Michelle Pierce, who's a biochemist, she's um, one of the ones heading this up, um, who we've been in touch with. And it's it's been a remarkable um, process and it's ongoing. So if anyone out there wants to fund this initiative, cause we're looking for funding, um, come contact me because, um, we need to get these people the funding and the answers they need. And the data about the project is online, right? Folks can go on or will be online. Is that it right? will be online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right now it's, you know, there's, I think there's the, uh, Hunter's point, um, community biomonitoring program, which is one thing that a Dr. Ahimsa Sumchai is um, heading up. Um, but the UCSF advisory on this um, community study is still being developed right now. So we're looking at, you know, what are the questions we ask working with nuclear scientists, working with um, environmental health specialists to ask exactly, find out from the community what is the question and how do we answer it in the most rigorous scientific way so that they can get the data that they they need. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for your music. Thank you for the work you're doing in our communities. And thank you for the inspiration. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. I would like to ask the two of you, in your role as professors working with students and working with social justice, I'm really curious about the role of anger. Hmm. Like, I know anger can be used to clarify, obviously to destroy. It can be used uh, to burn oneself out. I'm just wondering how it is that you've found your way to uh, help yourself, but also your students with this kind of... uh, uh, situation so tempting to be just plugged into the anger thing and uh, not really be so strategic about it. I'm just wondering for both of you, Donna. Do what a beautiful question! Thank you. Um, the first thing I will say is that we have to allow that anger to exist. It's in us, and we have to give space for it. Um, I think, quite frankly, it's a very uh, white cultural aspect to sort of suppress anger and make it everything very neat. Um, and so, you know, part of the diversity and inclusion is to sort of give, give space for the emotions we're truly hearing or feeling and hearing from each other. And then the role of education, as I see it, is really to how do we 
practice the tools around those emotions to really enact change, not just get caught up in our anger so much so that we're, we're either paralyzed by it or um, disenfranchised from each other. Right? And I think one of the tools of this administration that I've seen is really playing each other's anger off of each other. So, um, yeah, I think one of the things we really believe in in Presidio is creating space for the true emotion to come out and then taking the energy from that emotion um, and pairing it with really solid tools to move forward. I think that's a great, that's a great way of thinking of it. I think that um, righteous indignation is the word uh, Boots Riley, the filmmaker who's a good friend of mine, used to describe some of my writing. I was like, Boots, am I coming off too angry? He's like, hell no. <laughs> this is righteous indignation. <laughs> and, um, and I think that, you know, I don't find myself motivi- motivated by anger, um, but I do get angry. Um, I feel more motivated and inspired by kind of a vision that I can see of, of holistic health. And by holistic health, I mean dismantling capitalism, dismantling white supremacy, dismantling patriarchy, dismantling systems of oppression, and everyone getting along. <laughs> um, everyone finding a way to interact and get along and reintegrate to the circle of life together back into the circle with the mycelia, with the microbiology, with the microbiome, with the water, with the plants, with the animals. Um, and so I, I can see that as a vision and what moves me there is a vision of love. Um, and I think that that activation energy from anger is an important one, um, because it pushes me to go, Oh, hell no. Um, that's not going to happen, you know? And I think that that, that righteous indignation when you feel it or that anger, um, needs a space to come out, um, and needs a holding space. That's why art I think is very therapeutic, loud music, angry music, rageful music. There's music. I don't put on any albums because (laughs) it probably scare people. My five-year-old tells me, he's like, man, mom, that song is so intense. It's like, yeah, it's gotta come out. And so I think that, you know, having ways to release these energies so we can, they don't inhabit us, but that we can identify them and then move on, um, with love and kindness, um, because ultimately that's what we need. Um, we don't need to dismantle each other. We need to dismantle the systems that are preventing us from having a more loving bond together. Hi, thank you both so much um, for this event today. My name is Connor O'Farrell. I'm pursuing my master's of public administration at Presidio Graduate School. Um, and you've talked a lot today about what we all um, can be doing individually to really make um, this big push for change uh, at PGS, we talk a lot about what businesses' role um, is in this, whether you're in the MPA or the MBA program. Um, and so I'm curious to hear uh, more from you about where, how you see business keying into um, maybe helping to make this political economy shift um, or really, you know, pushing for sort of the voices of the communities being impacted to be the loudest voices in the room rather than those um, who have the most money who are typically these business professionals. Thank you. That one's for you. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I didn't go into business for a reason. <laughs> um, so that's a really good question because what is business's role? I guess I see um, 
I see. I, I, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I, I'll probably think about that one for a week. Yeah. What is your sense yeah. of that? I'll tell you, I think that um, sometimes we, we think about business as this separate entity, and really all of us are in business. We're the consumers of businesses. We work for businesses. And so when we start to demand those things that we want to see businesses do, when we start voting with our dollars, when we refuse to patronize businesses that aren't um, operating with some sort of conscience in this world, then we can really sort of make our voices heard. So I really think that thinking about business as a dis- uh, disconnected entity is doesn't doesn't do service to the amount of power we really have when we think about it as part of a system of systems. We are consumers. We patronize businesses. Let's stop buying things from businesses that aren't acting right. I just, I guess I just don't think of that as being as, I mean, I think that's effective, but I don't know if it's transformative. Transformative. Yeah, right. I think we might need to rethink what business me absolutely like for me my business is keeping people healthy right i want to be supported in keeping people healthy i don't want to have to charge you for that i don't have to say oh i'm going to keep you healthy you need to give me 500 dollars and i'll keep you healthy Mm. i think there's the transactional relationship of business where it's tied to finance is problematic and i don't know how to extricate those mm-hmm. things. I'm, that's not what I've been thinking about for the last 20 years of my life. I've been thinking about how do I keep people healthy? Um, and how am I supported in doing that? So I don't know if we need to, and maybe, you know, this will come as tornadoes and sea level rise and fires and these things make business impossible or more challenging. Maybe then we'll start to rethink, well, what, what is our business? Mm. You know? Um, so I think that, um, I don't, I don't know yet the answer to that. I think that's the million dollar question. Thank you for that answer. Um, my name is Eric Salvatierra. I'm a student at Presidio Graduate School and pursuing my MBA MPA. Um, this question is, how would you describe the role of uh, physicians or medical staff to engage with other stakeholders in uh, bringing down a, a system that seems to be consolidating to a point where that is creating uh, a space for physicians and medical staff to be compliant within the system because mm-hmm. it is something that controls our livelihood. Why are you in scrubs? <laughs> I have that side answer. Uh, I, I work in the field. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think that physicians and health workers are such an important voice right now because we are, like I said, on the front lines. So I see the disparity in my face. Like I see people go through medical, like medical bankruptcy. I see the dysfunction of the system and we are often so taxed and so tired, um, and just trying to get by and trying to pay our ginormous loans, um, which is another issue. I'm a big advocate of mass debt strike for students. If you're out there, students, you got debt, collectivize and go on strike. That's one way to bring down a dysfunctional financial system. Just organize collectively strike. We don't do that enough. And that would effectively shut down, um, an industry that is immoral. Um, so, um, 
So I think that physicians and other health workers, nurses are so much better at this than we are, I feel, because they have systems of organizing and they've gotten really good for decades of organizing and communicating um, and effectively striking um, to get across agendas that they feel will benefit patients and also benefit how they work. Um, doctors don't do that. Um, and and I think that we need to teach teach our uh, medical students um, and health workers how to use their voice and activate in public policy spaces. Um, so that's one of the things we do at the Do No Harm Coalition. So more training on imaginative use of your voice, whether that's through music or writing or performance or getting up in front of your colleagues or making a video online and like just finding different ways to use the voice to educate people about what we're seeing because we are at the bedside. We see it. We have a duty to communicate it. That's why kind of with the issue of the NRI saying, stay in your lane and all these doctors coming out and saying, this is our lane. Like we're the ones scooping up the bodies. We're the ones taking the bullets out of the the bodies. Um, We, we, this is our circle of healing. Um, How broadly do you want to define it? Most doctors define it patient by patient. And that's where we need to start thinking system wide, because that's where we're going to affect the most change. If you look at the amount of money that has been spent on cardiovascular drugs, research and interventional cardiology tools, fancy new tools, nothing has been as effective as the public health, the public smoking ban. So the public smoking ban in California drove down the rates of fatal MIs, fatal heart attacks, and fatal strokes, mm-hmm. and um, hospital admissions from pulmonary um, disease, way more than any drug. And why is that not on the news every day? Because it seems like such an important thing that we see, that something that costs no money, ban public smoking, had massive impact. No one made any money off of it. Lots of lives were sold, like saved. And so that's the kind of thinking I I would like to see. What happens if we just in California institute a pesticide ban? Mm. What would happen to the rates of Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, dementia, autism? What would happen to these things? We don't know because we haven't tried it because industry runs our public health in California. In the United States, industry runs our public health. We need policymakers and doctors and health workers to be running the public health, not influenced by industry. Um, so it was exciting to me, the public health, the public smoking ban, because it was, it worked, it was based on data and it was totally inexpensive and it works. So I would like to see more of that kind of stuff. My name's Rick St. John. I'm a retired clinical social worker and, um, my specialty was HIV AIDS, which at the beginning was only picking off people here and there, and it wasn't a public issue at all, and most people could disregard it. It was only after certain celebrities, but ACT UP came in, when people put their lives and whatnot on the line, did civil disobedience, that anything changed. And I really like, I mean, as a social worker, I was trying to ask, what do you need? Mm. I really like that, and I like bringing people together and certainly challenging people. I mean, white male supremacy, I've learned a lot about, you know, and it, people have to be challenged. However, we're in a crisis, 
You know, the last thing I read a study out of Harvard, I think it came out last November, 46,000 people die in the United States each year simply due to the lack of adequate health care when it could have been changed. That doesn't, I was out front passing out Medicare for all. People are numb. They're either too busy or don't care or, or see a stranger as something to be avoided. I don't know. But it's so hard, and I'm politically left, okay? And it's so hard even to bring people on the left together, you know? And, I mean, most of us are thinking the same way. We're in a crisis, and uh, climate change alone, I mean, that's going to lead to a crisis, and it's not going to be pretty, it won't be sitting down at tables, even though we should do it. It won't be. It will be a revolution, but it'll be a revolution of the strong against the weak. I always say I'm on the left. I don't have a gun. When the revolution comes, it's going to be all the people on the right. You know, how do we prepare? Definitely what you were saying and bringing this, but that takes time. Mm-hmm. And I'm a child born right after World War Two. Okay. Listening to the music of the 60s, it really motivated me, I have to admit, you know. That's what changed my life. Uh, but how, at a time of crisis, what do we need to do? We have to do something, we have to do it quick. And it seems everything that's positive to me is undermined, you know. He's too old, Bernie. Don't look at his policies, you know. This guy's got a pretty face or something. I don't know. Everyone runs after Everything works against us. In a time of crisis, I just ask both of you, like you're an educator, you're a doctor, how at this time, and I really feel uh, time has run out on us. And I don't want to be pessimistic, but to me, you know, pessimism is projection of realism on the future. And if we don't find a way of meeting the crisis now. And we're probably too late on climate change. There's going to be a heck of a lot of stuff. So I just throw that out there. We're at a time of crisis, and I don't know what we can do. And having been politically active for years, um, I think a lot of suffering is going to happen. So uh, I, I agree with you that a lot of suffering is going to happen, um, and this is why we're having these dialogues. And I and I, I actually am inspired and hopeful because of the openness I'm watching happening in people's minds, um, even people who are you know diehard Trump supporters. If you want to characterize someone as that, you can still reach them as a human being, as a doctor. They still come to the hospital. There's still people I can sit with and talk to about. Yo, you can't pay your healthcare bills. Like, let's talk about that. Um, I think these dialogues need to be engaged in across the places where we're comfortable. So I think that people have retreated into echo chambers and we stopped reaching across divides. And so I would say, have that dinner party with your 10 Trump supporting (laughs) relatives, whoever they are, or have that dialogue with people who you are not used to being in dialogue with. Um, because I think you'll see that resiliency is growing and that these structures that we're starting to talk about in the imaginary, um, will come to pass 
but not through our pessimism, but through our active dialogue and experimentation. So it's through radical imagination, radical experimentation and radical hope that I think that these things will create what we need when we need it. Um, and I do believe the crisis is coming. I, I feel that I am a mother. Um, my son was born last year and his coming of age will be climate catastrophe. And so, and I'm married to a farmer. So we are like in this dialogue all the time and we have hope because we see, you know, white folks opening up to what white supremacy is. You know, we're seeing this dialogue happening now that didn't happen 10 years ago. We're seeing, you know, people, institutions like UCSF making health equity a pillar of their institution. That didn't happen 10 years ago. That's happening right now. Um, we're seeing people, the Smithsonian being interested in a dialogue around supporting this mini Wichoni health clinic. So that didn't happen. So these things are starting to the imagination. You have to imagine it in order for it to manifest. And so these things are, are happening and that's what gives me hope. And I think that we are up for some challenges because I think that we are all aware of what's coming with the climate. And we can either react. I feel like the human imagination has two reactions. When we're threatened with the threat of our survival, we can go fascist, tribalist, nationalist, me and mine. I protect those. We can go cooperative, um, altruistic, and globalist. That, that's me. Um, that's my impulse. But actually, those impulses live in all of us which is why I think we're seeing what's happening in Brazil. We're seeing what's happening in India, in the Philippines, it, Hungary. It's happening all over the world. It's not just here. And I think it's because people are subconsciously tuning in to the fact that something big is coming. And so how do we jam the culture with the, the hippie vibration that was so you know beautiful here? How do we really push that into our consciousness by creating structures now? Um, whether they're invisible structures, imagined structures, or actual physical structures. Um, so I think that um, I, I, I just, I'm a diehard hopeful person in the face of the coming catastrophes. So maybe what we need is more biodiversity of thinking as well as food and to expose ourselves to a wider range of food and a wider range of thinking. The medicine man that I talked to this weekend said, organizing communities, mm -hmm. and this is what we're talking about, having um, music festivals, having dinner parties, having uh, sharing our health data. This is all about community, isn't it? So uh, we're almost to the point, maybe we can take two or three more questions, but let's see if we can bring them as questions. I'll Please. try to be brief. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I will also try to be brief. Hi, my name is Sally Jernigan-Smith. I work for Presidio Graduate School, and I also have had the privilege of taking a few courses there, including one with Donna Lasala. Um, you briefly touched on this, Rupa, when you're answering Eric's question, but when we're thinking about systems of white supremacy and we're thinking about systems of general generational wealth, um, and we're also talking about people not having the um, ability to even think about some of these big issues because they're ba going bankrupt, um, how do you uh, suggest 
we consider decolonizing the systems of education, and this is for both Rupa and Donna being educators, how can we work um, both as educators, people working in academic administration and students, how can we work to decolonize those systems of um, of white supremacy and other harmful systems, um, financial, you know, oppression in education? Take that um, Thanks for the question. And before I answer it, I just want to, what was the last speaker's name? What's your name? Rick. Rick. Thank you so much for the passion and urgency in your comment. Um, I think Elizabeth summarized by saying that we should throw those uh, dinner parties and we should go to those music festivals. And I just want to highlight the fact that we should do that with people who don't always think like us. Let's reach out to our conservative neighbor, our Trump supporter neighbor, and really have a conversation out of love, not out of anger and not out of continuing the polarization, but really joining. And I just feel your energy so strongly, and so I wanted to thank you for that and suggest that. Um, Sally, I think uh, I'm going to keep it brief because I'm looking at the clock and I realize we're running out of time. Um, But I do want to encourage everybody who is part of an education system to question it. Um, There's so many times that we go to the institutions of learning and think, oh, grand institution of learning, grand grand system of education, tell me what I need. But as we've been talking about here today, people people understand what they need, and they generally know when they're not getting what they need. And so today there's a huge movement movement across campuses to to examine things like white privilege and white supremacy. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention a book that I think if if we can assign some homework to the white folks in the room today, um, Me and White Supremacy, a wonderful woman named Leila Saad, uh, put a workbook online that you can work through uh, one one lesson a day for 28 to 30 days and really examine our own complicit behavior in the systems of white supremacy. Um, and I know that they're difficult words sometimes, but if we can just read the passages and reflect on the learning, I think there's some power there, power there to be had for our own education. Thanks for the question. Um, I think that until education, until either there's reparations where for slavery and genocide um, for black and native people, or, um, and, or, um, education is universal, like healthcare, um, we're going to see these systems replicate themselves. Um, so we can't, you know, privilege is really held in these spaces. And, um, even in a wonderful place like UCSF where I work and people have been very supportive of my work, I get challenged repeatedly when I start to, you know, question what's happening with a patient and whether implicit bias or racism is playing a part in what's manifesting or, um, you know, these words are so charged. Um, and I saw a great t-shirt yesterday at the meeting where a woman had a t-shirt that had black lives in big print and underneath white feelings, um, where it's like, <laughs> let's just put this in perspective, right? It's like, I know it makes you uncomfortable, but I have 12 dead people here, you know? So it's, I think that, um, until we have true economic equity possible, um, we can't really have these institutions of learning become, um, unless they, you know, radically change their financial structure, which mm. I would embrace. Um, but it'd be great if people could access these knowledge systems. Um, I think the internet also provides a, a really powerful resource to, um, openly access educational systems for, you know, allowing communities to empower themselves with knowledge. Hi, my name is Jennifer. I'm a Tenderloin native, and right now I'm focusing on 
um, improving healthy food access in my neighborhood um, to combat diet-related diseases. Um, and I'm applying for nursing school next year. And my question was for Rupa, you just actually just touched on it um, right now, just like, how do you deal with these like um, challenges with like colleagues of having these conversations and like, especially as a woman of color, like in predominantly white institutions, how does that, how do you navigate that? Um, I use data that helps my white colleagues who are uncomfortable. Um, <clears throat> so, um, first of all, do you know about TNDC? The ten- you do. Nice. <laughs> oh my God. So you do. So my husband is a, Tell us what is TNDC? sorry, the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. They're a nonprofit that makes housing in the Tenderloin. Um, and my husband is a farmer who has moved to the city because he fell in love with a city girl. He's still <laughs> trying to pull me out to the country, but he's developing rooftop farms on new buildings and he's working with TNDC. Um, and we're trying to imagine projects around food access and health. Um, so health access, food access, these things should be, I mean, it makes so much sense. Yeah. So that's so cool that you're working with him. Um, but I remember, you know, Oh, um, there's a video that's circulating online that, um, actually is now like over 12 million hits, which someone filmed me talking about an experience I had where I was describing, um, you know, systemic racism being a problem, um, affecting the outcomes of black women seeking cardiovascular care leading to these disparities and it offended the cardiologist. And I got a call from my boss that offended, you know, how could you say this? And I said, well, here's the data. This just came out in the new England journal. This has actually been researched. This is what the data shows. So I'm just speaking to the data. And they're like, Oh, <coughs> you should be careful with the words you say. Uh, and then, and then actually it just happened again, uh, last two weeks ago where a young black man had hemophilia in the hospital. And I was watching the dynamic between the white um, service, the white doctors, nurses, and the patient. And um, I thought, hmm, I wonder how this is, you know, how what that therapeutic relationship is like. And clearly it was fraught with dynamics. And I spoke to the patient. I'm like, what do you think is leading to, you know, your lack of compliance with this medication and how this is going? He's like, oh man, they're hella racist. I was like, oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> you feel like your healthcare team is racist. And so having to explain that to the doctors and nurses and say, well, this is how the patient's feeling. It's like, I don't need to be lectured to you about, you know, implicit bias. And I don't need to be lectured to you about this. I'm like, I'm not lecturing. I'm just telling you what the patient said. And then here's some data around how these things play out. And, you know, your research thing is this protein. My research thing is these issues. Like, this is what I've been studying for the last 20 years. And so trying to give it to them, like, oh, it's just another thing we're researching. Um, it has, you know, really significant outcomes. If a woman who's black in New York can die at 12 times the rate after having a baby than a woman who's white, mm -hmm. we got a major problem. Um, of course, it doesn't get the attention that, let's say, cardiovascular disease does because there's not a drug that you can develop for that. It has to be a policy change. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, it's uncomfortable, um, but now there's language around it. So I had a 50 year old renal doctor 
who said to me, Rupa, can you get this study on my patient? She still hasn't had her, her PET scan. And she has this recurrence of cancer that we're worried about. And I ordered it six weeks ago and it still hasn't happened. Now she's in the hospital. Will you get that study? And he's a, you know, an Asian doctor. And I was like, I can totally get that study. Let's get that study. He's like, I think it hasn't happened because of systemic racism. And so I said, Oh, okay. <laughs> so I called down to nuclear med, you know, this renal doctor thinks this hasn't happened because of systemic racism. <laughs> we'll get to that right away. <laughs> so at least now there's like language that people are using. And I say, you know, kind of, it's funny, but it works. Yeah. Um, and he's not saying it to punish anybody. Cause it's not like, you're a racist, but it's like, okay, we're all participating in the system. Let's do better, you know? And so I think it's, that's how it's changing and that's exciting. Thanks so much. Wow. This is incredible. Um, I am a retired public school teacher. Um, I'm also turning 64 in a f- another month. I have lived with type one diabetes for 62 years plus. Um, thanks to the health care. Um, but it's been very challenging since I've been retired. Okay. And as a result, I have been working pretty hard with Medicare for All in California. So one question I had, because you mentioned universal health care, um, are you a member of the Physicians for National Health Plan? I have been receiving their emails. Okay. Well, they are very strong with the National Medicare for All. And I just want to know if you're in contact with students who have been working with this movement as well, because there's a strong movement of students I know over at UCSF in particular. Um, And I guess the last question I want to ask you, because I've been active there out in the field with people, what can we do that you, a doctor, cannot do in terms of reaching people you know, um, that with Medicare for all, et cetera, universal health care, that, that needs to come, that will be an equity for everybody who's residents in the United States. What can we do, those of us who are working for this? So how is your question, so I understand, how can you... How can, how can, what can we do that maybe you can't do as a doctor? Mm-hmm. To help inspire people to support Medicare for all? Yeah. I think sharing data, sharing information, sharing stories about your healthcare challenges, like why you shouldn't have to have those healthcare. It's actually not the doctor's place. It's, it's everybody's place. So my stories as a patient are more inspiring for the reason why we should all have healthcare than anything I've encountered necessarily as a doctor. I think that doctors um, have a space in, in advocating for it, but really I think that this will come through people driving it and people need to be aware of each other's challenges and say, that's ridiculous. Like, and so I think that the more we can educate each other on our personal challenges and everyone's got them, if it's not you, it's your uncle or your neighbor or your friend. Um, I think the more we can be educated about how like ridiculous the healthcare system is right now. Um, and that there's actually an option available. I think this momentum has been gaining on this issue. Um, around the country. And I think that's exciting. Well, there is data to prove that it is, but there's also 
the, you know, the fake news as well as, you know, and it runs into a lot of different things as well. Thank you so much. Can I just add one thing very quickly? I know we're trying to wrap up. You just did what more of us need to do. Get up to the microphones that are available to you and tell the story that needs to be told. I think if we all take back our structures of civic engagement, if we go to our council meetings, if we sort of use our voices in ways that, um, that matter, like you're doing here today, I think that we can really work as uh, after those dinner parties. Have a dinner party before a council meeting and then go rush the council meeting and speak and tell your elected officials what the lobbyists are telling them, but only the opposite, right? <laughs> thank you for using your voice. Thank you, Jamie. I want to thank Rupa and Donna for their comments here today. It's been wonderful to have you here. And I think we can all go away with asking questions like, Hmm, what do you need? How can I help? What great listening questions those are. Mm. So thank you very much for being here today. And now the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. <laughs>